Father, in the name of Jesus, for your great glory and our joy, we ask now that you, by your Spirit, would do a continued work of grace in this room. Those three only place in the Bible that praises spoken of you in three ways. Holy, holy, holy. So that means something. That is who you are. You are holy, the great I am. And I pray, God, that the weight and gravity and joy and glory of that would fall on us. God, I pray that you would wipe away any distraction that keeps that from being our greatest desire today. Crush anything that stands in the way of that, King Jesus. We ask you to do that. That will be for our good, our benefit, our advancement. Crush anything that stands in the way of your holiness your grandeur, your otherness being our great delight. Be exalted for our joy and for your praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Three Rivers Church. Ezekiel chapter 37. We're studying 16 verses. 16 verses that are 16 signposts that take us to the gospel and show us none other than Jesus Christ. In 16 verses today in Ezekiel 37, we're looking at this glorious promise of resurrection. Probably not many of us in this room like to talk about uh, what is necessary for resurrection to really count and matter. Resurrection is a glorious reality and we are thankful for it, but in order for resurrection to take place, there has to be death. I buried both of my parents and preached both of their funerals. And uh, death is not a pleasant experience. Death is ugly. Nobody ever dies the way they do in movies. It shouldn't happen that way. It's not comfortable. It's not pretty. It's ugly. It's smelly. It's gross. It's traumatic. Because death is not supposed to be. But in order for resurrection to really, shall we say, light a fire in our souls, we have to come to grips with the reality that death is real. It is not normal. And there is to be no joy in it. From the fall, sin and death have reigned. As a matter of fact, the day you eat of it, you will die. Sin and death show up together as an evil pair some 50 times in 11 different verses in the Scriptures. I'll give you two examples here. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that would be Adam, and death through sin, let us not kid ourselves that sin won't kill As long as I keep it between me and the wall, it's okay. No. Sin kills. Death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. This is why Adam and Eve's failure in the garden is monumental. It's because it wrecks everything and everybody. There is no one unaffected by sin and death. If you are in this room, you were born. If you were born, you were born dead. You were born in sin. Because through Adam, death spread to all people because we have all sinned because we come from the original sinner, Adam himself. Romans 7.13 Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing what? Death in me through what was good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Expose it for what it is. Through the great good commandment of God, sin was exposed to be the deadly thing that it is. And through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. Isaiah 53 showed us how Jesus addressed the sin issue. 
that the great servant, the suffering servant, the great substitute would come and He would take God's right wrath at my sin on Himself and by His wounds be crushed by my sin and the weight of God's wrath at my sin so that by faith in Christ and repentance from sin, I would receive His glorious goodness and perfection in the great exchange of the gospel. Ezekiel 37 is going to show us how God addresses death. A little side note here. If you do any kind of reading on the prophets, um, Ezekiel uh, 37 is, even even by our beloved uh, hero Charles Spurgeon, uh, Spurgeon, by the way, just FYI, if you like listen to other pastors and read other books, and you got your heroes, all of them are flawed. There's one hero and his name is Jesus. So even Spurgeon wasn't right on Ezekiel 37. Yes, I said it. Spurgeon was wrong. Makes way too much about Ezekiel 37 having absolutely nothing to do with resurrection because they argue from the historical, critical perspective that this passage is simply and solely about God's restoration of national Israel. That's not untrue. It is about God's restoration of them nationally at a particular point in time, which the Scriptures show us in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, that God would be faithful to His promise so that in 516 to 513, God would begin to bring them back to this piece of dirt and be faithful to the promise He gave to them. But that's only part of the passage's thrust. As a matter of fact, I would argue it's only a tiny sliver of the thrust. And the problem comes when we focus on that tiny part and miss the large part. And that largest part is that Ezekiel 37 is primarily about Jesus and His work of overcoming death. This unfortunate isolation of the passage only national Israel is a, is a result of terrible scholarship and just... Can I, I got a master's degree in this stuff, okay? So I'm not against scholarship. But scholarship for 150 years has not helped the church. It has isolated the Scriptures from the church and has kept people out of great learning and has done unfortunate things through the text to isolate it to simply national Israel and robbed us of the glorious gospel reality. I'm going to give you a passage to help you see that the idea of this just being for national Israel is, is absurd. And that even Spurgeon said that there's no way that this passage could refer to the doctrine of resurrection. I'm like, dear Charles Haddon, God bless you. You're wrong. Let me read Hebrews 11.19 for you. You ready? In studying your Bible, you never ever isolate any text from any other text. Bible study 101. When you're reading the Bible, always interpret it with the Bible. Make sense? Real simple. All right? Here's what Hebrews 11:19 says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, so your offspring be named. Do you understand like the absurdity of what he's doing? He was promised a son through which the line of the Messiah would come. The the serpent crusher would come. Remember, we studied Abraham. And here he goes and he takes the promise to sacrifice the promise. That's that's absurd. Who in the world would do that? This is the promised child. Why would you sacrifice this child? Here's why. He considered that God was able even to... What? Raise him from the dead. So what's Abraham thinking? Resurrection. So if Abraham's thinking resurrection, why in the world could Ezekiel not be thinking resurrection? You see what I'm saying? So not only is Ezekiel thinking resurrection, this passage is only fulfilled in Christ. Let me give you some other examples. Elijah. In 1 Kings 17, 8-24, the widow of Zarephath and her son, who Elijah raises from the dead after a sickness. And then Elisha, his mentor in 2 Kings 4, 18-37, the Shunammite son. All of these, if you read the, the Kings and Chronicles, and you particularly read about the lives of Elijah and Elisha, you're going to see some crazy similarities between them and Jesus. 
The reason is, is because Elijah and Elisha are prototypes. Jesus sent as forerunners of his work in raising people from the dead. So when you read about Jesus raising a widow's son from the dead in the New Testament, that's because Jesus already sent Elijah and Elisha to show us what he was going to do in defeating sin and death. That's what they're there for. We don't study Elijah and say, I want to be like Elijah. Elijah's there to point us to the one who will truly overcome death. Because little little newsflash for you. All these people that got raised from the dead in the Bible had to die again. And so when I look at Elijah, I'm looking for one who can come and permanently solve this problem. Beyond a raising from the dead, a permanent raising from the dead. So to say that Ezekiel could not have in mind resurrection from the dead is to ignore the rest of the Bible, and we are not going to do that. No doubt when we read the prophets in the Old Testament, there, there is historical fulfillment to some of those passages because when we got Ezra and Nehemiah, God was faithful. He brought some of His people back to the land and restored them. However, the application of the gospel in Ezekiel 37 is our focus today. Why in the world would that be? Why would that be? Here's the reason. Jesus is the only focal point of the entirety of Scripture, not Israel nationally. Jesus is the focal point of the entirety of the Bible. He is the point. Jesus is the framework by which we interpret everything in the Bible. Now, this is huge. I want you to follow me for a second because we're studying Ezekiel 37. And lest I take it and moralize it and turn it into something that's not, we need to understand that the focal point of this passage is none other than Jesus. Okay? So, regarding God's faithfulness to Israel, I mean, is it just simply that He would bring them back to the dirt and give them some dirt that they're still fighting over today? No. Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, is the faithful Israel who the prophets look forward to. I'm going to say that again because that's monumental. That will create a shift in your your thinking about how you read the Old Testament. Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, and, and highlight Son of God, is the faithful Israel who the prophets look forward to. Exodus 4.22 calls Jacob, or Israel, the Son of God. Now, this is why when you read the New Testament, don't just ignore the things Jesus says. Remember, He's preaching from the Bible. Genesis to Malachi. Jesus isn't making stuff up. He already created the world and He's given us His Word. And as He is teaching, He's preaching from the text. So when Exodus 4.22 calls Israel God's Son, and Luke 3.22-28 records Jesus at His baptism being referred to by God the Father as the Son of God, that is very important. Because then we have Acts 13, 32-33. And this is passages being preached. Remember, we just studied Acts. This passage is being preached to show the people listening something very important. And here's what it says. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by... So everything God promised, everything that is written in the text, Ezekiel 37 included, okay? Everything promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled. There's nothing hanging in Genesis to Malachi that hasn't been fulfilled. Nothing hanging. You hear that? Nothing hanging. Or Acts 13 is wrong. There's nothing hanging. This He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is the faithful Israel that the prophets look forward to. 
He is that faithful Israel that the prophets look forward to. And He is the fulfillment of all the prophetic word regarding Israel. So yes, God did bring some of these people back to the land and gave them the dirt. And they're still fighting over it today. But ultimately, this is fulfilled when He raised Jesus from the grave. That what God pulled off in Ezekiel 37 is ultimately put on display on the third day when the rock was rolled out of the way and the eternal Creator of the universe stood up and said, Mine! This is my creation, my salvation, those are my people. That's where Ezekiel 37 finds its thrust. Otherwise, we turn this into a political passage and we choose sides who we vote for based on whose side they're on. And that's not what this passage is about. So we see God has been faithful to Israel because He's been faithful to His Son, Jesus. And now we see that Jesus is concerned with gathering His church made up of any Israeli or Arab or Palestinian or African or Asian or Native American that will repent and believe by faith alone in Christ alone from every nation by giving to them pardon from sin, Isaiah 53, and resurrection to break the curse of death. So this passage finds its focus in none other than Jesus Christ. And what He has done in being raised and conquering death so that we can have that promise fulfilled in us on a future date. This passage finds its epicenter in none other than Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 37, 1-14. What do we see? What does it mean? And how do we obey it? Let's, let's quickly read the passage and we'll make a few observations about it. Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. And He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. I want to preach that bad. He obeyed, did what he was told. Let's roll the disciple, hear and obey. And as I prophesied, it's not like he questioned God. He didn't have an argument with him on whether or not he should do that. And didn't have to put his schedule and get his calendar down and decide whether or not this was a good thing for him to do, if he had room to fit it in. So I prophesied as I was commanded. God told me, I did it. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. So what do we see? What does it mean and how can we obey it? First observation. Since Jesus, and I've already made this point, it's just repetitive. Since He is the faithful Israel, Ezekiel 37 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and made then a reality for all God's people. Since Jesus is the faithful Israel, this passage is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and His resurrection and then made a reality for everyone who puts their trust 
in Him. An exceedingly great army. Because Jesus has been raised, those who trust in Christ and come to faith in Him, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are part of the people of God. An exceedingly great army. By the way, God gave them the land in the first place, not to be the place of permanent dwelling, but to be the locale from which they launched to obey the command and the mission given Abraham to make sure all the peoples of the earth knew and understood. Which is one of the reasons, ultimately this is fulfilled in Christ, because national Israel didn't do it, failed at it, and therefore the people of God, the church, are the ones who carry this mission from the local church to the nations. The land given was never meant to be a single place they fought over to keep. It was the launching pad to the nations. The temple was to show the glory of God. This is why when Philip is preaching to the Ethiopian in Acts 8, why? It was for a short season they spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, like Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 2.14. And the nations heard and they came and they wanted to see the wisdom of Solomon and this great wisdom God has given to man. And they believed. To this day, they're Ethiopian Christians and Ethiopian Jews. And their source is the glory of God in this chunk of land that was simply there as a launching pad to the nations. And so this passage is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus and it's made a reality for all of God's people. We'll get some implications for that for us in a moment. Romans 1.4, Right? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, this, through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son. Did you hear that? Did you hear it? I want to read it again. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, through his prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Abraham, Noah, through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son. This is why we're preaching these 16 verses. This is why we're teaching how to study the Gospel from the Old Testament, because it is concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. What? By his resurrection from the dead. So where is this passage ultimately fulfilled? In Jesus who was raised. And is the pattern for that which is available to us by faith alone in Christ alone. Here's a question for you. How do we see this gospel put on display in Ezekiel 37? Let's break it down, verse 1 to 2. We see the gospel put on display in Ezekiel 37 because we see people and nations are dead and in the curse. People and nations are dead and in the curse. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And He led me around... Among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the ground, and behold, they were very dry. When you see bones, what do you think? Oh, life! No. One time I was fishing. I was in high school. I used to fish all the stinking time. And I was fishing on a little creek in Taylorsville, Georgia, and I was working my way up the stream. The wind was coming downstream. Okay? And so... Uh, I kept smelling something funky. And as I worked my way upstream, casting, catching little fish and putting them back, I happened around a corner and there it was. A dead cow, bones partially exposed, maggots coming out all over the place, and the wind blowing the dead smell of dead cow right in my face. And I saw those bones and the first thing that came to mind was a vibrant life. It was dead. Ugly, gross, nasty. When you see this passage, we have, oh, oh yeah, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Ha, ha, ha. Great little Sunday school song. And it's a great song. It teaches the story of Ezekiel 37. But when we see bones, we see deadness. 
bones remind us that this is a dead nation and these are dead people. And there's not one or two of them. There are very many of them. What do we see? Rebellion against God's Word, rebellion against God's truth, kills. Sin kills. Sin will cause death. And this nation is in exile because they worship Baal, because they had other idols. They had other things they put their trust in. They had other things they put on their calendar ahead of God. They had other things that were more important than Jesus. Their crops are more important than God providing for them. Their animals not giving birth properly was more important than God making them give birth properly. So they chose their own means, their own way, and they were dead. And the gospel parallel for us is because of Adam's sin, we likewise are idolaters. We likewise are sinners. We likewise worship our own things, our own gods, and do things our own way. And as a result, sin has killed. People and nations are dead. All you have to do is pick up a magazine, pick up a newspaper, look on the interwebs, find your favorite news source, and you will find that death sells. Death is all you will read about. Why? Because people and nations are dead and in the curse. What's the second thing we see in observing this passage? How does it point us to the gospel? We see in verse 3 to 10 that God's word is powerful and it's effective to raise dead people and dead nations. Verse 3 to 10. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I love his answer. This is how you should always answer God when he asks you a question. Oh Lord God, you know. That's a great response. Don't fake an answer. Don't make one up. Hey, Jolly, we're going to do the next ten years. Lord, you know. Oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. As I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And these bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come on them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. So walking dead come to life. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and what? The breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. God's word is powerful and effective to raise dead people and dead nations to life. I find very interesting here that there's nothing in the narrative that gives us any indication that skin, sinew, and breath hesitated when spoken the word of the Lord to. <laughs> there's, there's nothing here that gives us any indication that they, hmm, let me think, of, hmm, let me see if that fits into my schedule today. Me, I don't know, I'm kind of busy. I've I got stuff to do, places to go, people to see. No. No. Two things very important here. Number one, when Ezekiel received the word of the Lord, there was no bargaining there was no justifying in action. There was simple obedience. You said it? Yes. There's a valley full of dead bones. And you got to at least be thinking the prophet's going, don't want to be one of those. Might ought to do what he says. So he speaks the word of the Lord. And when he speaks the word of the Lord, the bones stand up and obey. The flesh obeys. The ligaments and tendons obey. The muscular tissue comes on. Skin comes on. And then He speaks to the breath and the breath comes into them and obeys. Why? Because God's Word, God's Gospel is powerful. And I want you to hear this from me. When we say God's Word, you can equate Gospel. There's nothing in this book that doesn't preach the Gospel. It all preaches the good news. That's what we're training you in. That's what we're teaching you in. It's how to read and how to see and how to read narrative and how to read letters and how to understand that the gospel, Jesus, is the focal point of all of it. 
so that when you're reading the text, you can make that interpretive understanding that this is showing me the gospel. And why is this important? Because his word is powerful. It is powerful. It is supernatural. I know that doesn't appeal to a naturalistic worldview that says prove it. Or appeal to some kind of empirical data that says I need the statistics that show me. There are no statistics and there are no data for you to look at. It's very simply the fact that God's Word is powerful. How do you know? Because you're sitting here this morning. And the reason you came likely is because somewhere at some time, the gospel entered your ears, took you from death to life, changed your attitude, changed your desires, changed your direction, changed everything you were. And you came because this is no waste of your time. Because you were motivated to come here for some reason outside of yourself. Because it's powerful. And so we see that when the Word of God exits and it lands, it is effective. The Gospel... Is powerful and effective. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We'll come back to some application to that in just a moment. We see that God's powerful word and God's powerful action, I think it's important to note here that Not only does God's Word go forward, but God brings action from His Word. You see, there's a little passage in Isaiah that is quoted in the book of Romans. It says, God's Word will not return to me void. Because see, when when the Word of God goes forward, it lands and produces effective action. There, there There is nothing that can resist effectively the sovereign decree of God. Notice here in verse 11 to 14 that God's powerful word and action crushes unbelief. And He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, He's quoting them. Here's who this is. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We're indeed cut off. I hear you, Ezekiel. Sounds awesome. One problem. Babylon. One problem. Assyria. Oh, there's another little problem on the horizon. The Medes and Persians. Where's the temple? You seen a Bible recently, Ezekiel? Not a... Flourishing democracy or monarchy, huh? The, we're cut off. Our hope is lost. That's what they said. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. I love how God responds. God never, God never answers the direct... God goes straight to the heart, always. He never tiddlywinks around the little peripheral issues. He just goes straight to the heart. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm in charge of Assyria. This is why you need to read your Bible because you read little, little things in Daniel, which is pretty awesome. This is incredible servant of the Lord Daniel. Um, great statements that God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And what he's not saying, he's not saying, he's not saying Nebuchadnezzar is a follower of the Lord. That's not what he's saying. There's a declarative statement here that Nebuchadnezzar is an idolatrous pagan. But I hold him in my hand and I turn him wherever I want. And if I want him to bless you, he will bless you. And if I want to take him down, I will take him down. Nebuchadnezzar belongs to me for my purposes. Daniel, therefore you open those windows and you pray to me. And if they put you in the fire, so be it. I'll walk with you in the middle of it. The reality is, they said... Our hope's lost. And God says, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. Straight to the heart, O my people, and I will bring you into the land. And you shall know that I'm the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. 
And I'll put my spirit within you and you'll live and place you in the land and you'll know that I'm the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. You see, the reality is, for us, we recognize as followers of the Lord Jesus that His powerful gospel and His action crushes unbelief. It crushes unbelief in those who don't believe and it crushes unbelief in those of us who wrestle doubting that God will be faithful to His promises. Which is one of the reasons why you need to be in the body. One of the reasons you need to be living the life. One of the reasons you need to be a disciple is because only then do you see the powerful action of God's Word. As you obey Him, as you speak the Gospel and watch Him do supernatural things that you just simply can't explain. You just receive it and go, wow. (laughs) Okay. It's awesome. Right? So... How can we how can we obey? How can we obey? What are some things we can do? Um, practice practice reading, studying, and obeying God's word. Practice reading, studying, and obeying God's word. Listen, I, I, I don't I can't I don't have a systematic way to tell you this other than to say you will never know the supernatural power of the Scriptures until you are committed to being in them and knowing God in them. It is absolutely a mystery to me. This is why I don't have words. I can give you words, but there's no other way for me to tell you this. You just have to experience it. There's no other way that I can read the same plan for almost 25 years. I get through the Old Testament once a year, New Testament and Psalms twice. It's rote, it's habit for me, it's what I do. I don't do a lot well, but that I do well, as I'm a habit guy. When I get in my routines, I like my routines, and you don't mess with my routines. So that's one of my routines. I get up, and the first thing I do is I go to the manual. Old Testament once a year, Psalms, and New Testament twice a year. And what's crazy is it's the same passage on the same day. It doesn't shift. And you think, there's nothing... That's... That's rote. That's law. Legalism. You're trying to preach legalism and it's not fun because it's the same thing every day. Yep. And you know what's crazy? This is what I can't explain. You have to experience it. It is absolutely insane after 25 years that on a day when I may be about to walk away from the faith, that same passage I read 20 years ago meets that need in that moment, just what I need at that time. And how did God know I needed to read it on that day? I don't know. He just did and He put it there and it kept me alive. You need to live like that and know what that's like. Because it's those moments where you go, this junk's real. There's no way to explain that. There's no empirical data. Like there's no chart that proves it. It's you walk in it and you realize there is no way outside of me that can happen apart from God's Word being powerful and effective. And if you don't do it, you'll never experience that. You'll rattle around as a piece of dried fruit on a dried vine wondering what's wrong with me. At the, at the risk of sounding a little more charismatic than you might be comfortable with, I'd say pray it. Pray Scripture. There's a whole bunch of prayers in the Psalms. Pray them. If you don't know what to pray, pray one and pick one. Happy plunge it. Go there and go close your eyes and just... Oh God, we've heard with our ears and our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days and the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted, you afflicted the peoples and you set them free. Not for their own sword did you win the land, nor by their own might did you save them, but your right hand and your right arm, the light of your face, you delighted in them. That's a good word. That's happy plunge right there. Happy plunge one. Pray it. Ask Jesus to make it effective. It's okay. You know what Bonhoeffer wrote about the Psalms? This is not in your notes. This is free. You know what Bonhoeffer wrote about the Psalms? Bonhoeffer said that the Psalms are likely the prayers of Jesus. If you want to know how Jesus prayed, and this is his reasoning, since Jesus is the inspirer of Scripture, right? That's theologically accurate. Bonhoeffer is right. 
since he inspired David to write some of those psalms and Solomon and other authors, since he inspired them to write those prayers and songs, maybe when he was spending time with the Father praying, he was praying what he already inspired David to write. I don't know. He might be right. So it never hurt to take the psalms and just pray them. And if they work for Jesus, they might daggum work for me. Just, just try. Right? Pray the Scriptures. Speak the Scriptures over any and everything you encounter in prayer and hope. This is one of the most powerful things you can do is walk around your house and read Scripture. You got spiritual issues in your home? Walk around Scripture when everybody's asleep and read the Scriptures over your children. Listen for the Holy Spirit to speak life-giving words. Listen for God to speak to you. I know that's not popular in our some of our circles, but God still talks to His people. And I do mean by His Word. I hear the funny Joe. You want to hear God speak audibly? Read the Bible out loud. <laughs> yeah, yes. Okay, yes. But Holy Spirit guides us to truth and He will speak to you. He speaks to me. And if you think I'm crazy, that's fine. You don't have to come back. But my hunch is you hear Him too if you walk with Him. Listen for Him. Be quiet enough to hear His powerful Word because when He speaks words, He speaks life. And when He speaks life, He brings things that are dead to life. He keeps us alive. Because Christ has been raised, we too have been raised to life in Christ. There's a little passage here, Revelation 22, 1-2. This is looking forward to the eternal kingdom. Things are fully established. New heaven, new earth. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In God's kingdom, He heals and He fixes. What's broken, He makes right. What's dead, He brings to life. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. And if any, Ezekiel 37 teaches us anything, it's that A, Jesus got up, He defeated death. B, He gives life to dead things, people, nations, situations. Secondly, how can we obey? Have hope without fear. Have hope without fear. Two ways we can put that to practice. Number one, recognize that Jesus can save the deadest. Dead's dead. Ain't no such thing as middle way dead. Dead is dead is dead is dead. And those who are dead without Christ in their sins, there is no such thing as one Jesus can't wake to life. It is arrogant to assume God can't save anybody. Oh, He can. The gospel's that powerful. The question often isn't, can God save, bring from death to life? The question is, am I speaking the powerful word of God to them and over them? He can save the deadest. So take courage, have hope, and don't fear. It's crazy how we're afraid of evangelism. I don't quite get it. I really don't understand why we're afraid to tell the good news to people. I texted my friend this morning, Eid Mubarak. If you have any Muslim friends, text them today, Eid Mubarak. It just broke the fast of Ramadan. If you know anything about Eid, Eid is a celebration where in some countries they slaughter the goat or the lamb and they take the sacrificed animal and break the fast of their hunger with the food of the one who gave its life for it. (laughs) Some of you are going, I have no clue what he just said. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who hung on a cross and died, that their hunger, their thirst, our satisfaction may be made in him. It's crazy how God's built that even into a a false teaching, right? It's crazy. So if you've got any Muslim friends today, wish them Eid Mubarak. And ask Jesus to make that festival that in ignorance they have no clue what it's doing would point them to Jesus and they might be saved. Right? Don't be afraid. I already texted my friend this morning, Eid Mubarak! Exclamation point. I'll jump in your skin and tell you that. That's good because it can point you to Jesus. And I'm going to point you to Jesus anyway. So no fear. Just give it a whirl. Right? Have great hope without fear. Second way we can have hope without fear is recognize death is not the end. Death is not the end. 
One of the things I said at both my parents' funerals, and I believe this, death is not the end. Rather, in Christ, death has become our slave to finish Jesus' work in us to make us like Him and to restore us to the pre-fall state in the full image of Himself. Death wigs me out, I am not going to lie to you. I do not like death. I finished up the stuff with my mom's burial and the lady at the, at the how do you want to say cemetery, graveyard, ah, came and she wanted to meet with me. So I met her there at the little office and she started talking to me about buying my plots and double depth burial. And I just said, ma'am, God bless you, but I can't, I, I'm sorry. I, I can't, I know, no. What if I go first? That means I'm 12 feet down. I'm not, no, I'm good. <laughs> no, don't want to talk about it. I'm not care. I don't care about saving space on dirt. Bury me in Antarctica. I don't care. But you're not putting me 12 feet. No, I just don't. Don't want to deal with it. I don't want to go there. It's not on my radar. Death is not something that's pleasant to think about and talk about. But what we have to remember is because Jesus has conquered the grave, because Ezekiel 37 is fulfilled in Christ. And because He has been raised and He has conquered death and the powerful Word of God brings dead things to life, death is not to be feared. Rather, it is our slave. And death will complete what Jesus began in us when He saved us. Because the promise is that when we are buried, we as Christians are buried in hope that when Christ returns, like He got up, He will raise us up too. This is why John says in 1 John chapter 3, when we see Him, we will be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. The great hope is He will raise us up and we'll be just like Him. This is why we get little glimpses in the gospel of Jesus after the resurrection in His supernatural state. We will be like that. And so therefore... Fear of death makes no sense to the Christian. This is why you see Christians willing to give their lives up in other places. They have a much firmer grasp on resurrection than we have because they don't fear death. So I get to go to Jesus quicker. Let's go. You're not tethered here. So have hope without fear. And then finally, um, I'm skipping over some notes. So I just want to want to finish this up right here. Um, Let's be a worshiping people. Let's be a worshiping people. It does no good for us to have an an incredible intellectual understanding of resurrection if it doesn't produce in us praise. One of the great lies of great learning is that we can keep knowledge bundled up in a stoic expression. And I can already hear I can already hear my own disapproval and my own argument against such statements. But what we find in scripture is that when God does great works, his people always respond in appropriate praise. There's just this there's something that happens that when God works, we respond in worship. Isaiah 6 is the quintessential passage to teach us. It's really, I don't know if you've recognized this or not. You maybe, probably, I've not taught it to you, so how could I expect you to know this? But our worship service is built on Isaiah 6 structure. We didn't just pull this out of the air. It's like, hmm, this would be a good idea. We sat down and said, what are the movements of this great worship experience where God reveals himself and the prophet responds in obedience? How about we build a worship service built on revelation and response? God shows who He is, we respond. God shows who He is, we respond. So we said, let's do that. So we did that. So when you come in here, what you don't realize is even the structure of our time is put together with revelation and response in mind. They would see something, taste something, experience something, then respond some way. I would have been absolutely remiss if I put in front of you a bunch of information and and didn't connect it to some way to a great hope we have in Christ and give you an opportunity to respond. We'll be missing Isaiah 6 
intention and purpose would be missing God's intention and purpose. This this passage like ate my lunch this week. I, I rewrote this thing four times and uh, still wasn't happy with it this morning. So I don't know what God's done with it. I trust He will do something with it in your heart. But I would be remiss if I didn't invite you to come and, and, and trust that the Holy Spirit will take some type of information and cause the flower of your heart to bloom so that some stoic inner thing would be released to, to joyous expression in the hope that we have and been given in Christ and His resurrection that not only has He raised us from death to life to know Him, but when we die and are put in the ground, He will one day raise us up too. And those of us who've gone on before us in Christ will also get up too. That, that's, that's worth singing over. And so I want to invite you to Psalm 147.1. says, Praise the Lord. Exclamation point. Praise the Lord. It's a command. For it is good to sing praise to our God. It is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. If you're in Christ this morning, you've been raised from death to life. Praise Him for it. Don't fail to praise Him today in the congregation for bringing you from death to life. If you've lost someone who's in Christ, praise Him because... He's completed them, and you'll see the fruit of it one day when you're raised to fellowship forever in the kingdom. If you fear that day, fear not. It's your slave. To finish what Jesus began in you, so let's praise Him for it. Father, we pray that You would pull off all that You can, all that You desire to in this moment, in this time, and trust You to do that. Um, I ask You to overcome... Uh, any fear that we have, um, anything that, that keeps us from you, whether it be a fear or an inhibition or false information, maybe it's just lies of the world system we've incorporated into our thinking, our knowledge base. And God, I just pray you'd release us from those things. And um, Holy Spirit, you would guide us to Jesus, remind us of the truth, remind us of your word, bring us to Jesus, show us Jesus. Father, we pray if there's one here dead in sin that you would bring them to life. We pray that if those of us who are alive and wrestling with drying up and feeling dead, that you would pour life into us by your powerful and effective word. I pray now for you to loose our tongues to sing your praise. Free us to worship Free us to enjoy you in song. And pray that as a result of that, we would taste great joy today. Truly, our joy would be rich. Our unity would be palpable. Our love for each other would be real. And that as a result of that, you would be glorified. Your name would be made great. We pray this in Jesus' name.